Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. Fall is approaching, and we at Deep State Radio have been busier than ever, bringing you the latest news and analysis of the foreign and domestic policy stories that matter most. Members now receive more content than ever, as we've expanded our content and bonus offerings to include all shows in the network. Members also receive an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and much more. And this fall, we will expand our offerings further with several seasonal projects in the works. To celebrate, we're offering membership at just $5 per month. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There is no need to enter a promotion code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash bye. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. We are marking the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. We are doing this by one-on-one conversation with our own Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Welcome, Ed. Great to be with you, David. Just let's start with your reaction to the Queen's passing. We had a podcast on Monday in which we were, or Tuesday, we were talking about new prime minister and, uh, and we didn't really sense this was imminent. So it, it was it come as a bit of a shock to a lot of people. Yeah, I think that picture, which of course now will be the last living picture of this Queen of her greeting while accepting the credentials of Liz Truss as the next prime minister did betray a little bit of frailty. I mean, she looked, you know, Liz Truss isn't exactly a hulking frame, but she looked like a giant compared to Queen Elizabeth. So the the effort it must have taken to get off what was basically her deathbed to perform this duty was, I think, captured in that picture. How, how do I feel? I mean, I think we've discussed before, I am not a natural royalist. I'm not a, an enthusiastic monarchist. Yet I felt deeply saddened by Queen Elizabeth's passing because I felt she was the best of what the British royal family could be, not just in terms of being dutiful and disciplined and, you know, not being political. She's obviously, that's a self-preservation instinct for any monarchy in today's world. The moment you're political, you're divisive and your days are numbered. She was rare in her family in not being gaff-prone And so I admire that discipline, but I also admire the way she did embrace a lot of change and push on it. An example that I was remembering, which was dealt rather dramatically with in one of the crown seasons, was because she so valued being head of the Commonwealth, the Queen, she clashed with Margaret Thatcher, who was adamantly opposed to sanctions on on apartheid South Africa. And the Queen did very, very rare events where she took a militant opinion, partly because the Commonwealth would have dissolved if she hadn't, but partly because she did apparently feel intrinsically very strongly that apartheid was a barbaric system. And so, 
she pushed where she did show hints of opinion, emphasizing she believed in celebrating people of all faiths and no faith, in being quite happy to accept gay marriage when a lot of people in her family are sort of dinosaurs on many of these social questions. And of course, in celebrating multiculturalism and a multi-ethnic Britain, she became queen of a pretty much uniformly white Britain. And she passes away as monarch of a, of a very multicultural and multi-ethnic society. And she saw that as a good thing and went out of her way. So I, I was fond of her, but I did feel surprisingly saddened by her passing. You cite a number of things she did, which as arguably the most influential person in her country and one of the most influential in the world, she made a kind of a, a substantive contribution. Is it your sense that the role she played, the role of being a monarch, is one that is important in British society still, or is it an anachronism? And it's kind of an anachronism that it's sort of, if you think of trees and the sort of old, the old oak willow analogy, Oaks are great trees, and actually they're a symbol of a kind of English nationalism, the oak tree, and willows are more wispy and bendy trees. For an institution like that to survive, it has to be a willow, not an oak, because uh, if it's unchanging, it'll come crashing to the ground. It's proved itself to be, to have quite good survival instincts. And I think that's chiefly because of her instincts. I mean, you must, must remember, however privately governess educated she was, that she was the first royal to do a sort of normal wartime job. She wore the battle, the army fatigues, she drove a land rover, she became a mechanic, she sort of got used to eating in canteens, and she did this as a day job. So she acquired a sort of ability to listen and talk to people, and then had to listen to often, I'm sure, in great pain, to a succession of 15 prime ministers once a week. And I guess, you know, as time wore on, she began to develop some of her own political instincts and was able gently to impart advice. So I think she went from being a pretty untutored, sheltered symbol of an anachronistic institution to a very flexible, versatile, even in great old age, adapter to changing times and um, and yet somehow a symbol of continuity that takes some skill and i think we'll we'll come to see just how much skill when we see king charles operating as monarch I, I don't think he has his mother's touch i don't think most of her children do in fact i mean prince andrew we don't need to discuss princess anne is i think probably quite smart but the family itself is not always impressive because it's a family, you know, how many people in the average family are smart, how many are dumb? Well, the British monarchy arguably over the centuries has produced more than its fair share of dumb people. There's a very famous quote when Edward Gibbon was writing another volume of the, the Decline and Fall of Rome, and King George III, of course, is not much beloved on either side of the Atlantic, said, another book, Gibbon, scribble, scribble, scribble. They weren't reading in those days either. So the monarchy has never been a sort of symbol of deep thought. But the way that Elizabeth channeled 
just a sort of flinty, quite uh, low-key common sense and decades and decades of experience of listening from Churchill onwards, I think was very impressive. And I think it will look better quite quickly as hindsight looms. Yeah, I think that that's kind of the subtext of this story. And that is what we are mourning here is more the Elizabeth than the Queen. And that, you know, in this royal family that you talk about, she became queen because her uncle abdicated the throne, allegedly for the woman he loved, as they say, but quite possibly because he was so pro-Nazi at the time. Her mother, you know, was kind of famously a bit of a souse. We've talked about the problems of her well, her sister certainly got into a lot of troubles. Her husband was kind of famously a bit of a racist. Her one son hung out with Jeffrey Epstein. Her other son, Charles, his, his personality quirks have been chronicled down multiple motion pictures. We've got the Harry and Meghan saga. You know, in other words, the rest of the family makes her stand out for being different from all. Is that, is that a misapprehension or? No, it's not. I mean, if I were to accentuate the positive or find a silver lining to what is a fairly shambolic family and in, in many cases, deeply unimpressive people, then I'd look to um, William and Kate, who have developed a reasonably good sort of working style and are quite popular both in Britain and abroad. And I guess find myself wishing, along with many other people, that if the monarchy is to reinvent itself again, as it must do, in order to survive and be legitimate, that there were a leapfrog clause in the unwritten British constitution that would allow the crown to go straight to him. I have to say, I think by default, because politics is so polarized now, and because not just in America, but in Britain, and because the caliber of people who go into politics has steadily got lower. It's not the caliber of available people. It's the caliber of people who choose to go into that business, which has become more and more tawdry. In Britain, it's, it's, it's really noticeable, the decline in public quality of, 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 of elected officials. That, in a way, is a sort of default protection for this monarchy. Well, here is something that you know we don't need to sully with our terrible electoral choices. It doesn't have power, but it has symbolic a symbolic value. It's sort of uh, one thing you can count on in a world of bewildering and really quite troubling political change. But uh, as you imply with your question, you know, if Charles III isn't up to being something like what his mother was, then that default protection isn't going to count for very much. Yeah, I want to circle back to that in a moment, but I've been listening for the past six hours to coverage of this. I don't know if you have, but I, I had to do a long drive. So we were, we were in the car listening to this. And I was listening to all these analysts, many of whom were American, not all of them, many. And they were describing things and they all seemed very familiar to me. And then I realized they were all scenes from The Crown or the, the movie The Queen. You know, and they weren't actually talking about The Queen. They were talking about a movie they saw. To what extent do you think there's a difference between 
the depictions and the reality? I think a pretty large difference. Uh, I think poetic license is the term normally used, but I saw a very interesting interview that Maureen Dowd did with Tom Stoppard, the playwright, who's bringing out a new play on Broadway, Leopoldstadt, which, you know, is about a very different subject, his discovering of his Jewish roots. Um, and he's an English playwright married to a Guinness, and his wife knows the royal family. And she said she stopped watching after season one because the gulf between what she knew and what the reality was was so wide. What I would say about season one is it felt like it might have been sponsored by the royal family because the queen just seems so instinctively wise and smart in all her judgments. And each prime minister seems so incredibly flawed and childish almost. Churchill in his dotage, Anthony Eden, probably a correct dis description, sort of uh, addled with painkillers and trying to cling on to empire. And Harold Macmillan is this feckless, rather unserious figure. And there is the queen, this sort of rock of common sense, of native fount of wisdom. That felt like it was a very beneficial season one for the royal family. But then when you get up to season four, it feels like whatever the small R Republican Party is of Britain sponsored that one, because it was very much a, a Diana from Diana's perspective. And, you know, the Queen's unfeelingness and rigidity and disapproval is what shines through from that. Although I think the depiction of Prince Charles Sykes shines through more. How accurate that is? You know, I mean, I think Diana was as good at playing the tabloids as anybody. And and so there's probably a bit more complexity in there. But she certainly caught the spirit of the people. And I remember when she died, I was in London, 1997, August 1997. And I had to drive to work, even though it was a Sunday, because I was working on a Sunday that day. And I drove, the route took me past Kensington Palace with all the flowers. And people by the tens of thousands already uh, early in the morning and of all races and ages converging on Kensington Palace with flowers, that sea of flowers developing. And I remember thinking, oh, the monarchy's in trouble. The monarchy's in real trouble. And the Queen, of course, was up there in Balmoral where she just died in Scotland and did nothing for a week. She was saved then by politics, by Tony Blair. So I think there might have been some truth in that. But then she adapted and came down, lowered the flag, mourned, sent her family out to mourn. So she adapted, probably biting her lip. But to be honest, I'm not qualified to say how accurate it was. I do know that people who think they know found it all the seasons, either too positive or too negative or just too melodramatic. But, you know, what do you expect? It's a drama. It's not a documentary. No, it's true, although I just got the sense that some of the analysis that I was seeing was people were mourning Claire Foy or or, or Helen Mirren <laughs> and, and not and not Queen Elizabeth, you know. But you know, having said that, and with respect to all of the qualities of the Queen that you've enumerated, seventy years is a long time. She became Queen shortly after the Empire started to come apart with the departure of India. But during the course of her reign, the empire essentially ended. The Commonwealth has replaced it, but it's pretty loose association. And there's now talk 
some talk, there has been for some time, about her, the king no longer being the head of the empire. And uh, we've even got talk of bits and pieces of the United Kingdom coming off in the years ahead. And the, the way that people viewed the monarchy from the wartime era, when the king was Colin Firth, through to today, has changed also. So that, you know, 90% of what people hear about the monarchy is Harry and Meghan and Prince Andrew and Charles and Camilla versus Diana. And, so, and it's kind of the Kardashians and even bigger houses, and it's not what it was. And the question is, is that an irreversible downward spiral? And I'll, just, I'll offer one last caveat with that. I made a, a tweet because one does, you know, in moments like this, in which I said something to the effect of, I would rather be mourning the monarchy than this particular monarch. And I thought that was, you know, tribute to her, but also expressing a different point of view. And immediately got tons of shit and people saying, I'm unfollowing you and how can you be so cruel? And this is the wrong timing. And and I'm like, this is the wrong time to take an anti-monarchy stand. You know, 240 years ago in the United States, we took an ant. You know, it seems to me that people have been taking these stands for some time now. So, you know, I'm just I'm, I'm just interested in your prognosis for the institution. Yeah, I mean, if you look at polls of under 30s in Britain, people under 30, I believe you're close to a majority in favor of a republic. So there is there's been a big, big shift generationally in attitudes, partly because of what you've just described. And partly because Britain is a very strongly, especially with the younger and more educated generations and urban, a very strongly multiracial country. And the queen, the monarchy has come to symbolize a sort of an empire that people would rather distance themselves from. So I think there's that. There was a surge in support for a republic in 1997 after Diana's death. And indeed, before her death, because so much of the sympathy was with her. And they managed, I think, partly because of the Queen's adaptability. And, at, you know, at, at that age, she'd already been on the throne 50 years by then. Well, almost. They managed to see that one off. And, you know, I think of, I think of some of the sort of highlights of what she did since then, um, you know, the Olympics. There she is with Daniel Craig, you know, playing a skit, a James Bond skit. There she is presiding over what was a, a wonderful tableau celebrating this modern, postmodern, in a way, multicultural Britain. I think of her trip to Ireland wearing an emerald dress and basically apologizing for everything. I can't think of a politician who would have done that so effectively with the Irish. And... She got to know Martin McGuinness, the Sinn Féin leader, the more moderate, pragmatic one, quite well. And he spoke extremely warmly of her. She was able to adjust. And I think sometimes it was authentic and sometimes it was dutiful. Will Charles be able to do that? I'm skeptical. I mean, at 73, you know, it, it, not too many people start a new innings at 73 and showed completely different colors. But Maybe the self-preservation instinct will be so strong, having desperately yearned for this throne for so long, that he will surprise us. Or maybe there is, talking of drama, there is a, a, a famous play called Charles III, which is worth watching now. 
in that play, he is forced to abdicate by his son, William, at the end of it, because he so screws it up. That'd be worth watching, since we're talking about the sort of dramatic parallel tracks to this real life. That's worth watching. It's actually a very, and I'm sorry, forgive me, the playwright's well known. I'm just sort of temporarily um, blanking, but it's a, it's a very good play. And it's televised as a movie. Yeah, it's, you know, he's certainly seems to have some of the traits of his father, which is to say, the inclination to say what's on his mind, regardless of the consequences. And, you know, I think a lot of the fondness for his mother had to do with her ability not to say what was on her mind because of the consequences. When Brexit happened, or a year or two later, The Sun had a headline, The the Queen Backs Brexit, based on no evidence. And they quickly sort of apologized, which The Sun never does. With Charles, I think you could pretty much know what his views are on most things. Now, they are very much to the left of his father. He's green, he's pro, um, I mean, he's deeply concerned. A lot of his views we'd agree with about climate change, He's uh, deeply concerned about racism, stuff he, we wouldn't agree with. He's deeply concerned about modern architecture <laughs> and has, you know, actually marred the careers of a lot of modern architects, which speaks badly, not just of him, but about people who commission architects in Britain being influenced by, by this. But he's not got the discipline. He's, um, he's closer to the quivering lower lip than the stiff upper lip. And you do need a stiff upper lip for that. You've just got to be impervious and you've got to be able to sort of go to default settings and blank yourself and be indefatigable, dutiful, carry on working till you're 96. She, as I say, must have dragged herself out of her deathbed. Charles seems to be more a person of creature comforts. Yeah, she dragged herself out of her deathbed two days ago. And today she's not with us. I just want to underscore for our American listeners that Ed saying that he was the quivering lower lip rather than the stiff upper lip was as brutal an attack as as British people are capable of. (laughs) Uh, But uh, having said that, just one other kind of question out of the news today. I was watching the various statements people made. And, you know, Prime Minister Truss's statement was anodyne, as one would expect from A, a statement like this, and B, from her. But then I saw a lengthy, florid statement from Prime, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who really went on. And I was like, does this guy know he's not the Prime Minister anymore? You know, is, is he carving out a kind of Trumpian presence, because he's kind of, you know, his statement kind of overshadowed her statement. I was just wondering if you had a thought on that. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more of this. This was his first surprisingly early opportunity to outshine Liz Truss. And he's going to be doing a lot of passive aggressive sort of public appearances in the coming weeks. He relies on being an entertainer, being in the public eye. And he's, he's, you know, I mean, I've no admiration for him at all, but he's he's a good writer. He's he's capable of being a good talker. He's he's able to communicate a thought of some sort of intellectual depth. That's not her thing. 
let's hope she grows into uh, I hope she grows into something more than she has been hitherto because hitherto I've not been at all impressed either her grasp of issues or her if there are any level of principles and an ethical sort of motivations for wanting to be in politics neither of which seem to be apparent now I think Boris Johnson is an ethical black hole so I wouldn't want to make that contrast but intellectually you know Boris is probably a far more supple and clever communicator I, I think he's a, about as lazy as they come Liz Truss is probably quite hardworking, and that's a difference but yeah he's going to be breathing down her neck and he wants that job back and he is not her friend and the more he professes friendship the less you should trust him there'll be a Shakespearean twist in there and some bejeweled daggers hidden in his robes. The next 10 days or 11 days, we'll see memorials, her her coffin at Balmoral, her coffin in Scotland, coming back to London, a big state funeral, presumably, a huge, presumably, and non-stop retrospective films around the clock on every news network. And this is often, you know, there's a subtext to these things. Whether the subtext is those were the days, we need to get back to these kind of values, that tends to be kind of a jingoism under underlying that. But Britain is entering a period of real crisis, economic crisis, and of continuing aftershocks of Brexit. Do you think that's going to feed into this kind of, those were the days kind of feeling? Or do you think it's going to make the shock of going from the Elizabethan era to the era of Charles III tough for him? Because all of a sudden, he's going to be the king and, and this lackluster prime minister is going to be the prime minister. And they're going to have big problems, which are going to be very hard to solve. And it's going to be very hard to live up to these panegyrics and fantastic retrospectives. I mean, it's also, I agree with everything you said, uh, uh, implying that this is going to be a great contrast between the reality and the near future that most British people are facing in terms of the economy, the numbers of small businesses that are already going out of business the cost of living, the inequality that's sort of deeply there, and this grand pageant, and it's going to be a long one because there will be a period of mourning. There will then, as you say, be the state funeral. There will be public days off. I mean, I I think in the old days, schools were given like two weeks off. I don't think that's practical nowadays. I don't think that will happen. But And then the build-up to the coronation after a suitable interval of months, probably, maybe, maybe longer. And uh, so people who are not naturally inclined to royal news, such as myself, are probably going to start getting pretty tired of all of this. And even royalists are probably going to start getting pretty tired of all of this. But the tribute to her, I think, will be authentic. And I think it will be sincere. And I think it will probably be a pretty spectacular state funeral because, you know, they know how to put on a show. It's You don't need the crown to script these things. They know how to put on a show. And, and I think it will be sincere. Um, don't underestimate the diversionary effects of pageantry and the processions of state. 
and the flybys as a way of, you know, in to some degree, distracting public opinion. Bread and circuses. No, I, 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 th- I think that's right. You know, when I think about Queen Elizabeth, I think of her being sort of the same age as my mother. She reminds me of my mother. I think a lot of the people in the street are going to have a similar feeling, which is she was the mother. She was the grandmother. She was a constant presence throughout the lives of virtually everybody who's going to be there lining the streets. And so they're going to relate to her as an individual, a human being, a persona. And that's fine. And I think that's good. And that's what people should mourn. I have to say, it's a little strange to me. I will admit it. I'm sitting here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you know, a couple of miles from here. The first shots were fired by Americans who didn't think they should be ruled by a king. And uh, a king, by the way, who Charles III has defended periodically, George III, right? And I, I find it a little bit strange that we're about to go into a period of celebration of an institution with such a, a bloody and, and often even horrific past. But I suppose that's how institutions like this keep going. They do. Um, you know, if you think of, uh, and I'm trying to think of real parallels, if you think of the Vatican, slightly controversial past too. You think of other monarchies, clearly the French got rid of their, by, even by British standards, very absolutist, divine right kind of monarchy. British did cut the head off the last but one Charles, Charles I. They did execute him and had 12 years of a republic called the Commonwealth under Oliver Cromwell, who turned out to be, and I think we've discussed this before, basically the Taliban. (laughs) And so that's kind of marked British views and English views in particular of, you know, the way children are taught things and you get sort of, you associate periods with sort of colors and some are very grim. That that comes across as a gray, dark 12-year period in in childhood minds in in England. And then the return of the monarchy, Charles II in 1660, is suddenly a time of gaiety and the theatres open again and colourful clothes are allowed and music's being played. And I think that's still lodged deep somewhere in the British subconscious and maybe, you know, maybe to some degree in America's, there is something sort of quite, you know, this is a long-running soap opera with very dark episodes but also quite a lot of entertainment. Although I will acknowledge the dysfunction in British democracy on behalf of the United States, I apologize for the role our country has played in tainting the name of republicanism because big R republicanism is pretty ugly in this country. And for making monarchy-free democracy seem periodically unpalatable. I would literally I was listening on CNN, somebody was going, well, the fact that she was there for 70 years made it so that British politics never got as dysfunctional as American politics. And I was like, what? But this is what we're going to get for 10 days, I guess. Yeah, we're going to our patience is going to be tried. I suggest we all sort of go back and read somebody like Edward Gibbon, you know, (laughs) might prove more relevant to our times than the next season of The Crown. And they must be rubbing their hands right now, by the way, the, the, the makers of The Crown. 
Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure they are. Well, there you have it, folks. There's the deep state radio recommendation from Ed Lewis, just the 18th century literature you expected. And uh, frankly, Gibbon wrote about the rise and fall of Rome. And uh, we in the United States probably ought to do some reading on that anyway. So it's probably a good suggestion. Or you could watch Gladiator. You know, it depends how much time you've got. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I I always like these depictions of ancient Rome where everybody's got an Australian accent. But that's, you know, perhaps perhaps there's there's a hidden uh, insight in all of that. In any event, uh, Ed, for those of you who don't perceive this, we changed our programming quickly and Ed agreed to pop on at the last minute so we could stay up to the latest news. Thank you for doing that, Ed. And My pleasure, David, as always. As, as always, likewise. And um, we'll be back next week, uh, back to talking about how many shirts Steve Bannon will be allowed to wear in jail or um, the latest revelations about nuclear secrets that the last president stole over the course of the past couple of years. Until then, thanks for listening. Thank you, Ed. Bye-bye.